Well, I think you see from the title of the sermon, we're taking a little respite from Romans. And we're going back actually to a sermon that I gave back in 2011. It'll be this week, and then the second part will be next week. And I'm doing this because over the time that um, I had my surgery and recuperating and then getting COVID and such, I actually got behind on my sermons, and I'm trying to catch up a little bit so that I'm not every week trying to play catch up <clears throat> and uh, giving my, uh, uh, the ladies who do my typing uh, conniption fits <laughs> because of it. So anyway, hopefully we'll be able to do that. So this week, the transforming power of the gospel, part one. Luke wrote his gospel to give us good and solid reasons for our faith. To give us good and solid reasons to believe in Jesus as our Savior and to serve him as our Lord. In fact, the reasons that Luke gives us are so self-evident and so irrefutable that not believing in Jesus as our Lord and Savior is not only irrational, irrational, and inexcusable, it is a defiant and deliberate assault upon the integrity and truthfulness of Jesus himself. So much so that Jesus said, he who believes is not condemned, but he who does not believe has been condemned already because he has not believed in the name that is the revealed character and identity of the only begotten Son of God. So then, what are those reasons that Luke gives for believing in Jesus that are so convincing and that remove any doubt whatsoever that Jesus is everything he claims to be, which is the incarnate Son of God who came to seek and to save those who are lost? I don't know of any other passage in the whole Bible that gives more persuasive reasons to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ than the text we are studying today and next week. Luke chapter 7, verses 18 through 35. This passage begins with John the Baptist asking John a question and then Jesus answering his question. And in this question, we have some of the very best reasons I know for our faith as Christians. But to understand what is going on here in the seventh chapter of Luke, we must first of all remind ourselves of the relationship of these two cousins, John the Baptist, the older, and Jesus, the younger. John the Baptist plays a prominent part in Luke's gospel. For instance, back in the first chapter of Luke, it begins with the gospel message of a supernatural prophecy by an angel of the birth and character of John the Baptist. And then when pregnant Elizabeth, John's mother, meets pregnant Mary, who is, of course, the mother of Jesus, the Bible says that the unborn John the Baptist leaped for joy, being filled with the Holy Spirit over the news of Jesus 
And remember, as I stated, unborn, still in his mother's womb. Then we have the account of John's birth and of the naming of John. And then after John is named, his father, Zacharias, who originally didn't believe his wife was going to have such a great son and was thus struck dumb for a while, finally was able to speak with the, when the child was born and under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit wrote one of the greatest and most definitive hymns in all of history, the Benedictus, which is a hymn not only explaining John the Baptist's role in preparing the world for Jesus, but explaining that Jesus' birth was God himself visiting earth, accomplishing eternal salvation for all of his people. Then we read of John's growth and development as a young boy into adolescence, similar to Jesus. In the third chapter of Luke, we read much about the preaching and baptizing ministry of John the Baptist in the wilderness and of people being converted, repenting, and then being baptized. And we then see some of the themes that he preached on. And then John gives his assessment of Jesus. He says, in essence, as important as I am in the work of God's kingdom, there is one coming after me who is far superior to me that I'm not even worthy to untie his shoes. Then Luke interjects a comment about John's later imprisonment by Herod. Then we read about John baptizing Jesus. In that baptism, we have the inauguration of Christ into his office of a priest and king. And that brings us then to chapter 7. There are three distinct phases of this discussion of the relationship of Jesus and John here. In verses 18 through 23, John, who is in prison at Herod's command sends a question to Jesus through John's own disciples. Then in verses 24 through 28, Jesus gives his own estimation of the value and the importance of John the Baptist. And then in verses 29 through 35, Jesus describes some of the responses people gave to the preaching of John and later, in chapter 9, in a by-the-way statement, Luke mentions briefly Herod's beheading of John. Now, why did Luke, who is writing a story about Jesus, give such prominence to John the Baptist? Let me ask it another way. Why did Luke place such importance on John and give him more space and more time and more prominence in his gospel than do any of the other gospel writers? And the answer is not really hard to see. It's not profound. The reason John the Baptist has such an important place in Luke's gospel is to highlight the greater glory and the greater importance of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. The greater the significance of John the Baptist, 
the greater the significance of the Lord Jesus Christ, who was the one John the Baptist came to prepare the way for. In fact, one interesting thing is that of all the gospel writers, Luke is the only one who doesn't give us a record of John the Baptist's death. Here is an important man, and Luke leaves out his death. He alludes to it later on, but there is no record of it as there is in the other Gospels who give John less prominence. It's almost as if Luke just drops John out of the picture and goes on with his story. Doesn't it seem a bit strange that Luke would not include the record of John's death when you consider his historical significance? Actually, John the Baptist owns his place in the Gospel of Luke and the life of Christ for one reason and one reason alone. And that is the testimony his life made to the significance of Jesus Christ. That is the only reason that he's in the Bible at all because of the testimony of his life to the significance of Jesus Christ. And beloved, that is all our lives amount to. We owe our place in history in any way, shape, or form, and any significance our lives may have to the testimonies our lives make to the greater significance of Jesus Christ. Are you justifying your existence as a human being based on your own accomplishments? Have you come to grips with the fact that the only significance to your life is the witness you give and the witness you are to the incomparable Jesus Christ? Do you consciously live toward that end? Do your children see that devotion in your life? Do you teach them from their earliest days that their only significance as human beings is the testimony they bear to the Son of God. If you have not learned this yet, beloved, you have not yet begun to truly live. If you think your significance as a person is in your intellectual discoveries and pursuits, or in your business ingenuity, or in your popularity, or your financial success, or some other contribution you make that focuses on you and it causes others to remember you, you, my friend, have missed the whole point of your existence. What was it that Jesus said? If anyone wishes to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life for himself shall lose it. But whoever loses his life for Christ's sake shall save it. For what shall it profit a person to gain the whole world and lose his own soul?
I ask you this very important question today, beloved. Have you lost yourself, given yourself to serving Christ with all that you are, and in advancing the claims of the gospel? Or are you still clinging to yourself? Are you still living like almost everyone else in this world for yourself? Realize that you are here and that you have what you have and you are what you are for one reason alone. The glory and the honor of Jesus Christ and what you are worth as a person will be measured not by whether people remember you, but whether they are impressed with Jesus Christ because of you. If you seek your worth in anything else, then you have lost your own soul. What was it that John the Baptist said about the relationship with Jesus? I've said this several times over the last few weeks. He said, he must increase, but I must decrease. Oh, I had a place in history, he said. It was to prepare the world for Jesus, and Jesus has come. So now my significance and place must fade out of the picture as he increases. And in a secondary sense, that must be the prayer of our hearts. May Christ increase in us as we decrease. May people see not us, but the Lord Jesus Christ in and through us. May that be our goal. May that be our prayer. Now let's look at this inquiry that John the Baptist made of Jesus. Let's look at Luke 7, 17. It begins by saying that the disciples of John reported back to him about the miracles that Jesus had performed. He raised the centurion's slave from near death, and he raised the widow of Nain's son from death. These stories were being circulated around the region and had reached John. Notice John is in prison. In Luke 3, 19 and 20, it says, But Herod the Tetrarch was, in, was reproved by him, John, on account of Herodias, his brother's wife. And because of all the wickedness of Herod, he added this also unto all by locking John the Baptist up in prison. Then later, at Herod's approval of Salome dancing, he granted her desire of having John beheaded. Here's the picture of this great man in person because of his fearless, persistent, and prophetic preaching to the political establishment, calling it to repentance not only because of Herod's incestuous marriage, but because of all the establishment's wickedness. So here you have John the Baptist calling the political establishment to repentance, not only because of its character and behavior, but also because of its wicked policies. Let me stop and interpose here. That this is a great picture of the church's role toward the state. Our responsibility as Christians and the church is to call the state to repentance. And brother, do we ever need this today? 
when the civil government, either in the character of those in places of power or in the policies of legislation they pass are evil, that is, they are contrary to the word of God, then we must call them to account and call them to repent, to turn from their evil ways. Oh, yes, you may be imprisoned for such things, and even someday it will come to beheading. But that's okay. That is what it means to be a Christian. As a Christian, you are called to proclaim evil as evil, no matter the consequences. And here's a picture of John the Baptist addressing the political establishment, calling it to repentance, being imprisoned, and later killed for it. So he sends a message through his disciples to Jesus. And he says in verses 19 and 20, Are you the coming one? Or as it literally states in Greek, Are you the expected one who is to come? Or should we look for someone else? Now I want you to notice that in this passage, Luke refers to Jesus Christ as the Lord. Because he knows exactly who he is. And we'll see more of this in just a moment. John says, are you the expected one who is coming? Are you the coming one? That is a specific messianic title. The coming one. The one who is coming is used for the Messiah in both the Old Testament and the New Testament. Psalm 118, for instance, says, Blessed is the one who is coming, speaking of the Messiah, in the name of the Lord. Remember what John the Baptist said in his preaching in the third chapter of Luke. He said, As for me, I baptize you with water, But the coming one is mightier than I, and he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. And in the book of Revelation, the Lord God Almighty himself is said to be the one who is and who was and the one who is coming, the ever coming one. So John sends his disciples to Jesus to ask, Are you the one who is coming? Are you the expected one? Are you the one who was promised throughout the Old Testament to be the Messiah? Then Jesus gives his answer. Now remember, John and Jesus are relatives. And John had a powerful ministry preparing the way for Jesus. He was also in prison for being faithful to Jesus. But he is perplexed over something and sends his dear cousin and Savior and Lord this inquiry. And he says, all I want to know is, are you the one who is coming or should we look for another? Now, notice Jesus answer to him. He says in verse 22, go and report to John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive sight. The lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, the poor have the gospel preached to them. Now, first of all, why did John ask the question? Well, some commentators 
make a superficial comment about this passage. And they say simply that there was a breakdown in John's faith. And he wanted to be reassured that after all the years of pointing people to Jesus, that he wasn't mistaken. I think that is reading something into the text that is not there. For me, that is even difficult to imagine. These two men were cousins and close friends and had been sharing the same ministry for 30 years. And John was a prophet. He was a mouthpiece of God. The message he had about Jesus, who was the great baptizer of the Holy Spirit, the Messiah, the one who was coming, he got from God himself. He knew exactly who Jesus was. In fact, if he had any serious doubt about Jesus as being the Messiah, he most certainly wouldn't have sent his disciples to Jesus to find out if he was. In verse 21, where Luke interjects a comment, it is almost as if Luke is coming to his defense and saying, John didn't have any reason to doubt Jesus. And then later on in the text, Jesus gives his own estimation of John as being far more than a prophet. So I don't think John sent the question to Jesus because he lost his faith or there was some kind of breakdown. I think if we look carefully at the text, we can find another reason. John was obviously perplexed about something. That is obvious. John had a question in his mind that he needed to settle. He sent the question to Jesus because he had faith in Jesus. It wasn't because of a lack of faith in Jesus. It was because of his faith in Jesus that he knew he would get the correct answer. It had just been, it been reported to him about Jesus performing all the miracles of kindness and compassion and raising the dead and healing the sick and other acts of love and kindness for people. Perhaps his perplexity came from the fact that Jesus wasn't doing anything that had the nature of judgment. Jesus was doing all these loving things for people, which the Messiah was supposed to do, but the Messiah was also supposed to judge people and condemn them. Remember, John himself preached not only that all would see the salvation of the Lord, but he also preached concerning Jesus, that the axe is already laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So I think... There's a better reason for John's question, and that is this. He is saying, in essence, Jesus, I have seen your compassion. I have heard of the miracles of grace and kindness, and I praise God for them. My disciples have reported the whole story to me. But where is the judgment? Where is the display of righteous indignation? The true Messiah that God told me to preach as a Messiah who would not only send salvation to his people, but who would also bring devastating judgment to his enemies. 
I've seen the compassion, Jesus. Where is the devastation? Now, before we see how Jesus answers that question, understand from the very start that for most people today, what I just said is totally out of accord with the way they view things. As far as their understanding of Jesus, he is a loving kind of friend who is tolerant, who loves everyone, and who hurts when someone hurts. And there is some truth to that. But you see, the complete picture of Jesus, and I think that is what John the Baptist wanted, is that the Messiah came to not only show compassion and bring salvation, but he also came to bring judgment. I believe Jesus' answer also helps us see that that was the intent of John's question. Why didn't Jesus just say yes to John's question? Well, in prison and perplexed, John asked, Are you the Messiah? Or should we look for another? So why didn't Jesus just settle it and say, Yes, John, I am the Messiah. I'm sorry you're perplexed. I'm sorry you're troubled. But I am the expected one. But he didn't. In fact, he almost gave an oblique, indirect answer. When the disciples of John came to Jesus and asked, Are you the expected one? He said, If you tell John what you have seen and heard, that is all he needs to know. When you tell him you have seen and what you have seen and heard, you will have your irrefutable, inescapable proof that I am the one who is coming. You know, there's something about Jesus that we often overlook, and that is he avoided the public an open use of the title Messiah, usually. Usually in his preaching, he avoided using that title with reference to himself. Not because he didn't know whether he was or not, but because in Jesus' day, that title Messiah had so much baggage with it, so many misunderstandings were connected with it among the Jewish people, that just to throw that word out there, would not communicate reality at all. For instance, it had been given a nationalistic, militaristic, political connotation. It had been thought that the Messiah was going to be sent by God and empowered by God to overthrow the Roman tyranny and establish Israel as a political militaristic base in the Middle East. And Jesus did not want to be identified with any of this. So we had a strategy, strategy which worked then and it works today. Here's how Jesus affirmed his Messiahship. Here's how Jesus proved irrefutably that he was the one who was coming. He said, remember and consider what you have seen and heard about me. I'm saying the things and doing the things that the Old Testament said the Messiah would do. In fact, I am doing the things only the Messiah can do. 
So rather than merely saying, I am the Messiah, I am the Messiah, just like all kinds of false messiahs of the generation are saying, Jesus said, I'm carrying out the messianic functions. I'm just not going around saying, I'm the Messiah, I'm the Messiah. I am doing what the Messiah is supposed to do, and only the Messiah can do, because the Lord's Messiah is Christ the Lord himself. So, if you will listen to what I tell you, what I am preaching, and if you watch the miracles that I perform, then it will be unquestionable as to who I am and as to the truthfulness of my claims. Listen to my words. Watch my works, and you will see that I am the Lord God incarnate, the Savior of the world, the one whom you have been taught to expect. Then Jesus mentioned some of the miracles in verse 22. He says, go and tell John what you have seen and heard. And he quotes from the Old Testament. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, the, de- the poor have the gospel preached to them. Look at the miracles I'm performing, John. All of these miracles result from the fact that I came to earth to fulfill what Isaiah 35 and Isaiah 61 prophesied about me. John certainly knew his Bible. He knew that when Jesus said the blind receive sight and that Jesus was speaking in the context of the Messiah in Psalm 35. And when Jesus told, said the poor will have the gospel preached to them, John would have known that Jesus was talking about the messianic prophecy in Psalm 61. Simply alluding to these prophecies of Isaiah that were made centuries before, Jesus was reminding John the Baptist that what he is doing and, and continuing to do is everything the Old Testament prophesied that the Messiah would do. In other words... Jesus was calling John back to the Bible, back to the Word of God. John, I know you have troubles. You are perplexed with the things I'm doing or not doing. Then go back to the Word of God and remind yourself what it has taught you. Remind yourself of what the prophecies were, of what the Bible says the Messiah would do when he comes, and allow your heart to rest there He's saying, in effect, John, as I've performed many acts of grace for my people, so you can expect me to also perform whatever act of judgment on my enemies as Isaiah 35 and Isaiah 61 prophesy of me. Be patient. Trust me. Believe in my word. Believe God's own self-evident witness to me in the miracles I perform and in the Old Testament itself. Now let's go to Isaiah 35 that Tony read a while ago. Because it is the underpinning of the passage we're studying today. Isaiah 35 is fulfilled in the life and ministry of Jesus. That was the point. Jesus, are you the coming one or do we look for another? John, remember what you saw and heard. Blind men receive sight. The lame walk and the dumb have their tongues loosed. I came to fulfill Isaiah 35. 
Let's see in Isaiah 35 what Jesus came to earth to bring about. In the first two verses of chapter 35, you see the transformation of a desolate desert into a land bursting with life and beauty and joy. Jesus came to change the desert into a blossoming garden so that those who walked through this this former desert would rejoice and shout for joy. Here you see the transformation of all of life, of the desolation and the emptiness, with life and with beauty and with joy. That is, not only individuals, and not only socially, but also cosmically, in every area of life, spiritually, socially, cosmically, physically. The Lord Jesus Christ came to earth to turn deserts into rose gardens. In verse 3 he says, I've come to encourage and strengthen those who are weak and weary. Verse 4, John, I I am also coming as the God of vengeance, so take heart. I know that you're anxious of heart, John. Here in verse 4 you have a direct answer for John. John, I have come to turn deserts into rose gardens, but yes, I have also come as a God of vengeance. So hold on, vengeance will come. And just a few decades after this, the vengeance of God in all of his fury fell upon Israel. This was a tragic historical event. The Bible says the likes of which had never taken place in history and would the likes of which which will never take place again in history. When the Lord Jesus Christ acted like the Messiah and burned Jerusalem to the ground. John, my salvation not only includes transformation, but vengeance also. I am coming to save my people, but I'm also coming to destroy my enemies. Let me stop here and say that in all our prayers for our nation, we must pray that the Lord Jesus Christ would not only come to act as a God of salvation for the penitent, the broken, those who are convicted of their sins, and for those who love God but that he would come also as a God of vengeance upon all those who persist in assaulting his moral order. Then in the fifth and sixth verses of Isaiah 35, Jesus speaks of the transformation and the restoration of all of life. He says he is coming to wipe clean the earth of all of his enemies by bringing judgment upon them. And in wiping them clean, he is going to bring restoration to every area of life. The theme of the book of Luke is the comprehensive nature of salvation. Jesus isn't just a personal savior. He came to be a cosmic savior. Not just to transform individuals subjectively, but to transform the entire life of mankind on this planet. Jesus Christ came to transform and to save souls, bodies, families, cultures, science, economics, political institutions, the arts, the environment, the future. Because all these things belong to Him 
And he came to transform and to save them from the destructive effects of evil. Evil ideas, evil behavior, evil motives, evil interpretations, evil goals, evil assumptions, evil conclusions. To remove from all of these areas anything that will allow them to flourish. And therefore, as Christians... Our task is to go into this world in all of its beauty and all of its variety and to claim it for the sake of Christ the King who came to earth to change the desert of this world into a glorious garden of flowers, who came to transform every area of life. And so we must involve ourselves in science, economics, politics, the arts, every single area of life, praying that God would give us the strength to find out what it is in that area, what kind of false anti-Christian thinking and living is in that area that is causing it to dry up and then to replace it by the grace of God with an approach to life and an approach to science and culture and history and all the rest of life, which that which is based on the word of God. Then the world, as it sees all these disciplines dry up on the vine, because of their evil assumptions and evil motives, will watch bewildered as Christians study and involve themselves in all these various areas of life. And they will see those areas flourish under Christian guidance because Christians standing for Christ in the power of that transformational salvation the Messiah came to bring. Then there's another allusion in this text. Not only to Isaiah 35, but to Isaiah 61. John, I am the God who is going to bring all this transformation. But I am also the God of vengeance. Don't worry about that. And then he alludes to Isaiah 61. Turn there with me, please, to Isaiah 61 1. <clears throat> this is a messianic prophecy. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, Jesus Christ. Because the Lord hath anointed me to preach good tidings, or the good news of the gospel, unto the meek. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening up of the prisons to them that are bound, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. John, just listen. Just listen to my preaching. Jesus says, John, look at my miracles. They are irrefutable proof that I am the Messiah. You need no other confirmation. And if I am going to preach the good news to the poor and the afflicted, I am going to bind up the brokenhearted. If I'm going to proclaim liberty to the captives and freedom to the prisoners and proclaim the acceptance of the year of the Lord, now look at the second part of verse 2. Then I'm also going to bring in the day of the vengeance of God. Vengeance will come. Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. I'm going to do it, John. And now the question is, who are the meek? The poor here. 
back in Luke 7, when Jesus says, I came that the blind might receive sight, the lame walk, the lepers cleanse, the deaf hear, the dead raised, the poor have the gospel preached to them. Who are the poor? To whom is he referring here? Is he simply saying, as most people would say in their superficial study of the word of God, that Christ came to identify with those who are in poverty all over the world? Back in the fourth chapter of Luke, Jesus preached on this passage in Isaiah 61, and he applied it to himself. He said, my presence in human history is the beginning of the fulfillment of Isaiah 61 and this great restoration of all of life that the Messiah came to bring has begun. I have come to bring salvation to the poor who are oppressed and enslaved and humiliated. You see in that passage in Luke 4, Jesus was not referring to those who are poverty-stricken all over the world but those who are suffering the worst poverty of all, the poverty of apostasy and judgment. When a nation is apostate and turns its back on the living God, it's poverty-stricken. It may not look like it at first. There may be this wonderful facade, but behind it are dead men. And then judgment finishes off for the reprobate, what apostasy began. So both apostasy, that is a turning from God in our hearts, and the judgment of God upon the impenitent, impoverishes, and it breaks and humiliates. Let me give you one text from Isaiah 10, verses 1 and 2. Woe unto them that decree unrighteous decrees, and that right grievousness which they have prescribed. Turn aside the needy from the judgment, and take away the rights from the poor of my people. The point is, God has an argument with those in places of political power who treat his people with injustice, and who oppress them, and limit their freedom by evil statutes, and the usurpation of power over them. But at the same time, there's something else that we should remember, and that is apostasy impoverishes. And the reason that the church is under the yoke of tyranny and oppression politically and socially and economically is because she is going through spiritual declension. The spiritual condition of the church, and this is one of the most important things I can tell you, the spiritual condition of the church determines the political and social and economic condition of the nation in which that church exists. Again, put this deep in your mind. The spiritual condition of the church today determines the political and social and economic condition of the nation in which that church exists. If the church is prospering, and is faithful to the Lord, she can expect that the civil government will be her nursing mother and protecting father, who will guard her from all her enemies. 
But if, as in the book of Judges, she continuously apostatizes, she turns her back on the living God and begins to live for herself, God will bring in tyrants and oppressors and make her life miserable. And no matter what you try to do to remove that tyranny and oppression from revolution to elections to changing the parties in office or whatever, none of those things will have any effect as long as the church at her heart is poor or impoverished because of a rebellion against the living God. Here you have Jesus saying, I came to preach the gospel to the poor. Israel was poor in those days, spiritually and physically impoverished. Jesus says he came to preach the gospel to this nation that had turned its back on God and was thus under the tyrannical rule of Rome. Now, what is the gospel he's talking about? Jesus says, this gospel I preach is what is going to bring about the transformation of all living things and liberate all those impoverished by the rebellion. It is the only thing that truly enriches individuals and nature. What is it that poor people need more than anything else according to this passage? Is it food, clothing, income? Absolutely not. They need the gospel preached to them more than anything else. The most important thing those who are impoverished by their apostasy against the living God need, regardless of how that apostasy shows up in their lives, is for the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ to be preached to them. Because, beloved, the gospel is the only power great enough to change our entire condition and transform all of life. Oh, there will always be slaves and the impoverished who will bow the knee to the tyranny of the state and to degeneracy because they refuse to hear and believe and live out the gospel of Jesus Christ in their lives, in their lives including a great many of those who call themselves Bible-believing Christians. So, what is the powerful gospel? It is the power of God unto salvation. And next week we're going to look at it in more detail, for it's something that Jesus alludes to in our text. And personally, I believe it is something we need to examine in detail as we face another election year. My dear brothers and sisters, we live in similar times as the Israelites in Rome. The church has denied its one true king and his lordship for ease and affluence and things. Instead of denying ourselves and submitting our all to him. And because of that, you can no longer deny this and stick your head in the sand. America is in dire circumstances. And unless we, the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, understand fully the power of the gospel and firmly commit ourselves to live it out in our lives, we will suffer for generations under the hands of an ugly tyranny. Please, do not be naive and think it cannot happen here. 
So next Sunday, we will spend our time searching for passages in Isaiah to see how he explains the transforming power of the gospel of our one Lord and Savior and King, Jesus Christ. Amen. Let us pray. Father God, we live in desperate times similar to those of Israel in the time of Jesus. We too have gone astray and turned our backs on you, whoring after the gods of pleasure and ease and affluence and power, thinking we know better how we should live our lives than you. And then, Lord, we have the gall to sit back and complain when our national economy is in the trash and our personal debt is more than we can handle. And as a result, we can no longer afford what we have grown accustomed to. We grumble when the words of the ungodly fill the streets with degenerate and riotous behavior. We scream foul when our elected officials seek to answer our dilemma with more evil statutes. I fear, Lord, we are more concerned with all of this means of our own future welfare than the fact that through it all, you are being blasphemed and that it is all the result of your people neglecting their duty to bring all areas of their life and culture into submission to you and your word. Oh, forgive us, Father, and embolden us to stand firmly on the rock of Christ, marching against the gates of hell and trampling all evil under our feet as we fearlessly preach your transforming gospel message without compromise. For Christ's sake, amen.